Uh, the scripture reading today is Nehemiah 9, 38 to 10, 39. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, and many others. We're going to follow on from verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labour. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, God, thank you for um, your promises to us. We thank you that you hear our, hear our prayers, you hear our cries, um, you, you, you hear our requests, um, and you're God who responds. Um, we thank you for your church family that you have brought us into um, through the cross of Jesus. Um, may today uh, just make it clear of what it looks like to be part of your family and to respond uh, to, your, to your gospel, uh, to the good news of what you've done for us. Um, teach us this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Um, if, you're, if you're just joining us, you're kind of, kind of dipping in with us, and we are like right in the middle of making our way through this like ancient text that might seem a little bit um, strange to you, or you might not kind of totally get the context, and I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm just going to trust that the Lord can uh, still make it sense uh, to you, and I'll try to be clear as I go along. So um, for the rest of you, I don't know about you, but um, the, the story we've been looking at, the story of God uh, restoring His covenant people, um, it's quickly becoming one of my favorite stories that we've looked at in the Bible um, and I think that the reason it's so heart-stirring is because it gives us this big, uh, beautiful picture of who God is and, and how he relates to his people. Uh, the, the story that we 
started looking at back in, back in Ezra actually began uh, about 1,500 years uh, previous to the start of Ezra when God called the most unlikely person, really, this, this elderly pagan nomad out of Ur of the Chaldeans, um, this kind of city in southern Babylonia, probably somewhere in modern-day Iraq uh, for kind of reference. He calls this guy Abram to leave the, the pagan land of Ur and to travel to the land of Canaan, that this land that God had, had promised to the descendants of Abraham, that, that God is going to take his descendants and he's going to bless them and he's going to multiply them and he's going to make them into this great nation. And we see this in Genesis chapter 12. And we're actually given the reason why he's doing this. It's so that this, this people can be a blessing to the families of earth. Right, that this people are going to be representatives of God, represent Him on earth, and bring blessing to the nations. And God makes this covenant with Abraham, and eventually with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And covenant is really how God relates to His people. Um, he will be their God; they will be His people. And the covenant basically says, "This is what the relationship is going to look like." Um, and God and his people enter into this, this covenant together, this, this relationship together. And the prayer that we looked at last week in chapter 9 basically tells the story of how that covenant plays out. Um, and it's really a story of two main things. Firstly, of how, how God has been so faithful to the covenant that they entered into. He's been so patient. He's been so gracious. He's been so merciful, despite the second thing that the story tells, which is the unfaithfulness of Israel. Um, despite the, the, the fact that, that they have continually rejected their relationship with God over and over, no matter how good he's been to them, no, no matter how forgiving he's been of them, no matter how much he's pursued them, no matter how much he doesn't forsake his people or the covenant that he's entered into with them, they continually reject him which we saw through their, through their story of their, of their, uh, of their history, uh, that this eventually ends up with, with God, who is a good heavenly father to his children, disciplining them, and they end up in exile. Uh, they end up in captivity in Babylon and then the Persian Empire. And really the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of God continuing to be faithful to his people, continuing to be faithful to that covenant, and him working to bring them back to the land, working to bring them back and restore them as his people. And what we've been doing, especially over the past three weeks, is kind of zooming in and unpacking what this spiritual awakening of his people looks like. What does what this spiritual renewal, this revival of God's people look like? Um, and, and it's been such a heart-stirring account of this fresh visitation of God among his people. Um, and, and I don't know about you, but it's, I think it's been so heart-stirring that it's it, it excited me for, for, for God to do it among us today um, in our assembly of God's people. And so what we've seen happen in this spiritual awakening um, is it, chapter 8 was the genuine people of God gathering together in unity, and they're, they're hungry for God. They're hungry to hear from Him and to receive from Him. Uh, it, it seems that God was lifting His people out of their kind of spiritual indifference, out of their worldliness. And so they tell Ezra, uh, bring us God's word. And they, bring, they, they build this wooden platform in the square for, for Ezra and these other leaders to, to read God's word and to teach it, to expound it, to uh, apply it to the people's lives so that they can understand clearly uh, what God is saying. And the result of them understanding God's word is kind of twofold, we've seen. Uh, firstly, that they make great rejoicing, right? They feast, they rejoice, they, they delight in God's word, but they also weep, right? So, so through the, the reading and the teaching of God's word, uh, the roof kind of comes off of their lives, and, and they're given this, this fresh understanding of who God is. They have this real palpable awareness of God's holiness, uh, of his, his goodness towards them, his kindness, his mercy, and his grace towards his people. Amazing. But, but that also brought with it a, an awareness of themselves. They, they have this, this awareness of not only God's faithfulness, but, but how they have responded to God's faithfulness, which is rejection of him. They have this awareness of their sin. And so not only do they feast and they rejoice in the hearing and understanding of God's word, they also experience deep conviction of their sin, and, and, and which rightfully leads to the confession of their sin, which is what we looked at last week. They confess. 
They, they, they worshipfully confess how good God has been, but they also worshipfully confess and grieve their own sin. They, they lament all the ways that they have rejected him in the past and how they continue to reject him in their present. And that kind of culminates in this confession where they say, oh Lord, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's, that's the, the appropriate uh, and right response to spiritual awakening, isn't it? But now what? What's next? Um, because their response isn't done. Their response can't be done yet. If chapter 8 showed us one aspect of the correct response of spiritual awakening is great rejoicing, and then chapter 9 showed us another needed response being the conviction of sin and the confession of God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness, Chapter 10 shows us the next needed and appropriate response. Um, we'll actually start, as Jen said, at the end of chapter 9 in verse 38, because it acts as kind of a connector between the two chapters. Verse 38 says, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. So because of all of what? Uh, because of all that God has, has been doing for them, because of this spiritual awakening, because God is showing them who he is and, and who they are. Because of that, here's what we're going to do. And they put it in writing. They, they say, here's how we are going to respond. And they respond by putting in writing and signing this covenant to turn from their sinful ways that they've been living in and to walk in God's ways again and, and to observe the commandments that he's given them. So, so the point at the start here is, is confession of sin is a uh, it, it's needed, it's the appropriate response to the conviction of sin, but, but then what? Th th there needs to be full repentance. Uh, contrition and regret of past wrongdoings is good, and, and it's needed, uh, but we see if those confessions are genuine, they'll be accompanied by commitment to and actual actions of turning from our sinful ways and walking in accordance with God's ways. Um, because confession of sin especially corporate confession of sin, uh, can be rather therapeutic and cathartic, can't it? Uh, like, man, just it feels good to get these things off my chest. Uh, j just saying and confessing these things that you feel guilty about, getting them out in the open, you can just begin to feel the burden lift a little, um, which is good and, and right. Uh, but it, especially like a special and even worshipful night of corporate confession of sin uh, can feel really great, which is a good response. But it can't be all there is. And so they say, because of all of this, here's how we're going to respond. Here's how we're going to live. We're going to repent. We're going to turn from our ways that we've sinned and, and we're going to walk according to God's ways. We're going to fulfill our side of the covenant that we entered into with God, which is the right response. Um, here's what I don't want to do this morning um, uh, as we look at this covenant that they sign in repentance of their sinful ways. I'm going to speak to the Christians in the room. Um, I, I think sometimes there's this temptation as the, the new covenant people of God. Uh, as, as those who live on this side of the cross and we've placed our faith in Jesus as the one who fulfills all of God's law on our behalf and, and, and he has now invited us into his presence freely through the sacrifice of his blood. I think sometimes we can look down on the old covenant people as being a little bit silly. Um, they, they, ah, they just don't get it, right? They, 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 we, we kind of uh, poo-poo their attempts a little bit to, 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 to get to God. Do, do you ever do that? And it's easy to read this as them attempting to gain their way to God through works, right? Through legalism. God, here's what I'm going to do. Are we acceptable now? And we kind of roll our, our new covenant eyes uh, at these silly legalists trying to earn their way to God. And that's not what we want to do this morning at all. Because that's not, is what it, what it, that's not what's happening in the text. And what I want us to see from this text is that this is the good and appropriate response of a people who have experienced conviction of sin. It's the right response is then to say, man, here's how we're going to live our lives. 
This isn't a legalistic situation. The Mosaic law was, was never meant to be a legalistic system. God never teaches his people, even in the Old Testament, uh, to be legalist, to, to live this way, and then I'll love you, and then I'll accept you. Never. Um, actually, it's important to understand that what's, what's happening in chapter 10 is not the people entering into covenant relationship with God, because they are already in covenant relationship with God. Right? They, they are the chosen, redeemed people of God already. That covenant was made on Mount Sinai. Think of what's happening here in chapter 10 as covenant renewal, which actually has a lot of precedence through their story. Whenever Israel was going to enter into like a new chapter in their journey, they were encouraged to renew their covenant vows. So that's what's happening here. Covenant renewal, not for the purpose of gaining God's favor, but as a response to the faithfulness that he has shown throughout their disobedience. They, they are the already chosen, redeemed people of God here saying that we are returning to God's ways because this is what he said being in relationship looks like, uh, being in a relationship with him looks like. The, the law was never meant to be the way that the people were redeemed. Okay, that would be legalism. If that's the way you've understood the Mosaic law, you've misunderstood. Rather, the law was the way that they were now to live according to God's ways as his redeemed people. And, and, and when they fail, and they do, when they sin and they don't live according to God's law, he gives them grace, right? And, and he gives them this Levitical sacrificial system which was a lot of work, right? A lot of uh, constant, repeated, daily sacrifices to atone for their constant, repeated, daily sins. Uh, it was laborious, but it was grace. The, the law was never meant to be the way the people were redeemed. It was always a response to God graciously choosing them and making him his people. Does that make sense? Chapter 10 is not a legalistic attempt to be made right with God. It was the good response that came after confessing the ways they have been unfaithful to God. They're saying, here's how we're going to live now. We as a community are promising to live in a certain way as a response to God's goodness and grace in our lives. It's a good thing. And, and, and we, we still do it today. You saw it on kind of display this morning. We, we enter into this, this promise with, with these parents to, to help raise their children and to help pray for them. And if you're a covenant member of this specific church, you've signed a covenant saying, here's how I'm going to live my life. Here is my commitment to holiness as a response to God's grace in my life, as, as a commitment to walk and live, not as an individual spiritual orphan in this world, but, but as a member of God's family uh, embodied particularly in this congregation, here's how I'm going to live my life. Right, And you've, some of you have signed that, that covenant just like they did. It's a, it's a good and appropriate response to spiritual renewal. Let's look at the covenant. Um, the first 27 verses of chapter 10 uh, give us these names of people who have signed this sealed document. Uh, right at the top, Nehemiah says, I'm the first to sign. Uh, I'm the first to take this step. And then you have this list of, of priests, these, these heads of these family groups, signing on behalf of the wider family. So if you're wondering where Ezra's name is, well, he's actually in that first group. He's the son of Sariah. Um, the, the priests sign it, the Levites sign it, the chiefs of the people sign it. Um, there's probably a lot we could pull from this list of names. Um, but one thing that I love is that the leaders go first. Right? When it comes to confession of sin, when it comes to repentance, the leaders go first. They're not there to, to, to tell the people how they have sinned, uh, how the people, how they should repent, how they should live. They, they are the first to put their hands up and say, this is me. I, I am included. I have sinned. I'm confessing. I'm repenting. We'll lead the way. When we're looking for leaders in our church, that's the people that we're looking for as well. So um, that's a side note. Verse 28 includes everyone else. Uh, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants. And did you notice all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God? So, so once again, the, the covenant people of God were never about racial superiority. The, 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 that last group that's mentioned are, are non-Israelites, right? This is a, a, a welcoming community. 
where, where outsiders are being welcomed in. The returnees are not simply preserving ethnic distinction. Okay? They're actually saying to anyone who, who wants to separate themselves from their sins, from the abominations of the land, to devote themselves to the way of Yahweh, they're saying, you've got a place with us. You, you, you're welcome here. So, so God saves not just the chosen people of Israel, but from the peoples of the lands, right? This is what happens when the chosen people of Israel live their holy lives like they were meant to and, and have that distinction in the land. Is there a blessing to others? And, and outsiders are welcomed in. More people are enjoying the presence of God. And you saw this happen back in Ezra chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6. Remember that Passover celebration where they celebrated that feast and it says they were, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship Yahweh, right? So there's a, a hey, if you are separating yourselves from the sinful ways to the way of, of Yahweh, there's inclusion there. Anyone is welcome when they turn to the true God. It's, it's mission in, in, in action here. It's beautiful. Verse 28, all the people, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, so even some, some young ones here, they join together, and verse 29 says, to enter into a curse and an oath to do what? To walk according to God's ways, his law that he gave to Moses, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord. Um, a couple things here then. Th this gives us the overarching commitment that they're making together. The, to, to walk in God's law, to, to, to observe and to do all of his commandments. They'll go on to mention some specifics. They'll highlight a few specific things, but, but it's a commitment to do all of it, which is also similar to our kind of membership covenant. We, we, we highlight a few contextual specifics, but it's a commitment to, to walk in all of God's ways. And it says it's, they enter into a curse and an oath, which simply shows the seriousness of their commitment. This is a solemn promise to live wholeheartedly for God, whatever the cost, okay? This is cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye kind of sense that you're getting. Except not school children, right? This is, this is a curse and an oath that's saying, if we fail to keep this promise, may a curse come upon us. And then verse 30, we, we get into the obligations of the covenant, and, and we'll, we'll see, uh, again, as it's an obligation to do to do and to deserve to observe all of God's commandments, they highlight three points. We'll look at them, and there's some contextual things that will apply to our lives today. The first one is in verse 30. They say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So here they address the problem of, of intermarriage again. Um, this one isn't surprising, is it? We, we've seen through their story that this has been one of their particular failures. It's not out of the blue. Um, we, we looked at this in, in more detail back in Ezra chapter 9, so you can go back and listen if, you've, if you missed that one. Uh, but essentially, God, God had told his people when they enter into the land, they were not to intermarry with the peoples of the land. So when you hear that phrase, the peoples of the land, really you should think worshipers of other gods. Okay, so, so it it's, has nothing to do with racial purity. It has everything to do with religious purity. And why was this a big deal? Why was it important for them to marry only worshipers of Yahweh, only people within the people of God, only within the faith? Well, to, to understand that, you have to remember what their purpose as the covenant people of God was, right? He, he chose them, he, he set them apart to be holy, and to represent him on earth, right? They were, they were meant to be this beacon of light in a dark world. And God would multiply then, not just his people, but his representation on earth, right? And they would bless the nations around the world and, and his glory would go forth. That was their purpose. So if you think back to Genesis 1, and God created man in his image, right? Male and female, he created them. And to be created in his image, partly it means to know God. It means to, to enjoy God. It means to be satisfied in God, to enjoy God's presence and to worship God. That's how he created them. 
And then he gave this cultural mandate in Genesis 1 where he says, now as that, go and be fruitful and, be, and, and multiply and fill the earth. But that cultural mandate, it wasn't just a mandate to fill the earth with human bodies, right? It was, it was a mandate to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's Habakkuk 2.14. That's what God is going to do on the earth. Fill it with his knowledge, the knowledge of his glory, right? So the, the, the mandate in Genesis 1 was really a mandate to, to fill the, the earth with God worshipers, to, to, to fill the earth with those who, who know God and are near him and enjoy his presence and who worship him. Genesis 3 then creates a problem, right? Adam and Eve, they sin. They, they reject their relationship with God. They reject that, that role as, as God worshipers and multiplying that sense. And from Genesis 3 onwards, what is now filling the earth? God worshipers? No, no sinners are now covering the earth, which kind of gives you the point of Genesis chapter 12 when God chooses Abram and he, he chooses this, this people, this family, who will take up that mantle of the cultural mandate again. Right? Through blessing this family and through multiplying the descendants of this family who, who are walking according to God's ways and who are knowing God and enjoying God's presence and worshiping God, they're in relationship with God, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. But how will they do this as they multiply? How will they do this as their descendants multiply and the family grows if both parents in the household are not God worshipers? Right? If, if, the, if a husband and a wife don't share that central foundational value of allegiance to and worship of Yahweh alone, the one true God, and they're probably not going to do Deuteronomy chapter 6 like we talked about. They're, 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 if both parents are not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their might, if both parents are not keeping his word in their heart, and they're probably not going to teach them diligently to their children, right? Which means they're, they're probably not raising children who, who walk in the, the covenant, who, who know the Ten Commandments and obey God's law, which means those kids will probably not grow up to marry God worshipers either, and they won't have kids. You see how the family fizzles out? So do you see the importance of marriage and subsequently parenting being between two people who have separated themselves from idolatry to walking in the law of God, walking in relationship with him? God's concern is for holiness and purity of his people, but again, for racial superiority, Far from it, for the good of the world, so that one day the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's important. And what's this say to us today? Uh, the New Testament still holds to this concern. Um, I, as I said, if you're confused at all, go back and listen to Ezra chapter 9. But here's, here's what the Bible, what the New Testament says in a nutshell. Um, you can read 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7. Essentially says, single people, what a blessing it is to be single. What a blessing it is to be single. I'll tell you from experience, you can do far more for the kingdom of God than a married person. The New Testament says, cherish that gift if it's been given to you. But if you are looking for a potential husband and wife, firstly, look for someone who shares your allegiance to and worship of Jesus. Don't, don't budge on that. Make that your top priority. And it says to Christian married couples, if you're raising your children, or heck, even if you're not, based on what we did this morning, are you taking Deuteronomy 6 seriously? Loving the Lord your God with everything that you have, storing his word up in your heart, teaching them diligently to the children in your midst. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're, you're in a marriage with someone who isn't a believer yet, then there's grace for you. Paul says... Stay married to that person, but live your life, your, your faith so boldly and so faithfully that you win your spouse to Jesus. Do you see the importance of that first point of their covenant promise? Purity for the sake of continued worship of God and mission to the world around you. Let's keep reading. You see the second point of their covenant promise in verse 31. It says, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. 
and we will forego the crops on the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So the point of this section is Sabbath, right? And in a nutshell, observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy, which is one of the Ten Commandments, it basically is a, is a day where the people would stop working and stop working and rest and, and, not, and not work, right? And God sets that example for us in the creation narrative, working for six days, resting on the seventh. Um, if you want to boil down the purpose of the Sabbath rest to one word, it's trust, right? It, it, the Sabbath is God saying, will you trust me? Does your confidence lie in what you are doing to provide for yourselves and to sustain yourselves, or does, it, or does that lie in me? Are you trusting me to be a refuge? Are you trusting me to provide and to sustain you? Right, so one day a week, they were to stop working, and in their culture, if you stopped working, you don't eat, which is kind of the point, right? God is saying... Your life is not dependent on what you're doing. It's fully dependent on me. Will you trust me? Don't you know that you can stop, that, that you can rest, knowing that I never stop caring for you. I never stop providing for you. I never stop protecting you. So, so that, that seventh day was important. It, it's a reminder for the people of who God is to them. He's their refuge. He's their provider. Right? So if they never take that day to reflect on that, on, on who he is, what will happen? They, they drift, right? They, 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 they move their eyes off of God. They, they stop seeing him as their refuge, and they start seeing themselves as their refuge. They, they focus on their work. They focus on their problems. They stop trusting God, which means they stop worshiping God. Um, again, what's the point of the covenant God entered into his people was, the point was so that he can be in relationship with them, right? He, he, he wants to be near them. And the old and the new covenant both uh, use this imagery of a husband and a wife to describe this relationship, right? The, the, the bridegroom loves his bride. He's, he's pursuing his bride. He wants to spend time with his bride. And intimacy is, is key to their relationship flourishing, right? And, and how will they enjoy that intimacy with him if they never stop and rest in the one who loves and cares for them the most. In the Sabbath, God is saying, will you stop what you're doing and rest in me and trust me so that you can remember me and so that you can know me and so that you can worship me? And I had a lot to say about this section that I just, I was up in my office and I just deleted. I just had to cut it for, this, for the uh, sake of time. But here it is in a nutshell. Um, I don't, and I'm not just going to say it now. It really is the, you don't know. It is the nutshell version, okay? Um, they're highlighting three things about the Sabbath in that, in, that, in that verse, right? There's the Sabbath day. There's one day of rest out of every seven. And then there's the Sabbath year, foregoing the crops on the, on, the, uh, on the seventh year. So that's one year of rest in seven years. And then there's the, uh, the, the exaction or the, um, the releasing of the debts in that seventh year as well. So if you think one day of rest, uh, of stopping working, is, is a lot of trust in God, how much faith do you think not working for a year would take to, to trust God for, to provide for you? Right? That's a lot. And then there's the elimination of debt. Every seventh year, they would clear the debts of their neighbors. It says, so that there will be no poor among you. Um, they were failing at that back in chapter 5, right? Greed was taking hold, and, and the root of greed is a lack of trust of God to provide for you. So again, the, the Sabbath is God saying, will you trust me to be your refuge, your provider, your sustainer? Um, and again, what's the point of trusting God? What's the point of walking in God's ways and, and observing and doing these commandments? It was so that the people could be distinct in the world, so that they could be a blessing to the nations, so that the knowledge of the glory of God would spread over the earth. And you actually see that being the point of these sabbatical commands in Deuteronomy 31. And I'm gonna, it's on the screen. I'm going to read that to you. And as I read that, I want you to, to think about what they are doing in these past three chapters and how it starts to line up here. It says, And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, that's the release of the debts, at the Feast of Booths, which they just celebrated in Nehemiah chapter 8, 
When all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place where he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the men, the women, uh, the little ones, and the sojourners within their towns, so outsiders are being welcomed in. What? Why? So that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Assemble them so you can read this word so that they can hear it and they can learn to stand in awe of God. Even your children who don't know it yet, may they hear and learn to stand in awe of God. Right? So the purpose of, of observing these commandments was so that more people could be brought in to stand in awe of God and to worship him. That's the point of it. It's missional. God wants to gather his people together so that they can trust him and worship him and enjoy his presence. And so what about us today? If we are similarly uh, tasked to, 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 to marry within the faith, are we obligated to observe the Sabbath? And Paul actually had an opportunity to make this claim in Romans chapter 14, and where he said, he's, he's talking, and he said, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And he says, each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. So he's likely talking about Jews and Gentiles there, right? Jews esteem one day above the rest, the Sabbath, while Gentiles see all the days as the same. And all Paul would have had to do to establish Sabbath observance for Christians would have been to quote that commandment, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's all he would have had to do, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he makes it a matter of Christian conscience. So, so if... if, if you feel that you should honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, do so. But if, you're also, but if you're convinced in your mind that the Sabbath is not something that you're obligated to do because Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law and he's brought it to its appointed consummation, and if by faith you look to what the Sabbath law uh, pointed to, which is rest in Christ, then be convinced of that in your mind as well. And the author of Hebrews says, we who have believed enter the rest. So whether you observe a Sabbath day or not, know that the Sabbath, it points to eternal rest in Christ. That's what it's pointing to all along. So even whatever you're doing today, trust in Christ and, and fulfill the Sabbath. And Paul warned in, in Colossians 2.16 that no one should be taken captive in regards to the Sabbath, which means I think you're not, we're not to allow others to, con to impose their conviction on us in the matter. Uh, but the issue with the Sabbath, again, is not to fulfill legalistic duties. It's not to the avoidance of certain activities. That's not the point. The point is to be those who trust Christ and find our rest in him alone. So to apply it, let me ask you, are you resting in Christ? Not, not just a, in a cognitive sense, but what are you doing to rest in Christ? Are you always working is your mind always on your to-do list? What, what do I need to get done next? And do you ever stop? Do you have any rhythms in your life where you slow down for loving union with Jesus and rest in him, remember him, trust him? You see, God wants to gather his people together so that they can find their rest in him and trust him and worship him and enjoy his very presence which brings us to the last section, which is all about the temple. Uh, and the rest of the, the chapter, they outline their commitment to supporting the ministry of, of temple worship. Um, I won't read it all again, but they go into quite a bit of detail of how they are going to give financially to support the ministry of the temple. Like all that goes on there, the sacrifices, the feasts, the offerings. They mention small details like how are we going to deal with the firewood for the, for the sacrifices. They mention big things like dedication of their first fruits to the Lord. And it's really the last line of the chapter that, that sums up the temple section where they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. Um, so why? Why was the temple so important? It's because what defines this community is their worship. Right? What, what, what defines them as God's people is they are a worshiping community, and their worship centers around the temple. The, the defining feature of Israel's identity was they are a people who worshiped Yahweh alone. And so this, this temple commitment, it facilitates everything that pertains to the worship of Yahweh. You see, the whole point of the Mosaic law that they are committing to keep here, the whole point of, of the temple was these things enable Israel to enjoy the presence of God. 
That's the whole point of it all. The commitments were not about legalistic obligations. They were about enjoying the presence of God. And God had had promised them that he would dwell in that temple amongst his people. And in order for the people to enjoy his presence and not be struck dead by his holiness, there was a lot of work to be done, right? A lot of sacrifices to be made to atone for their sins. So to enjoy God, they had to sustain the ministry of the temple, right? Because the temple was about enjoying the presence of God. And so the, the application for us today is, in the new covenant, is we don't have a temple where God makes his, a, a physical building where he makes his presence abide. We are the temple. Like, like you are the, the place where his spirit dwells. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, don't you know that, that you are God's temple? Don't you know that, 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 that you are where God's spirit is? His spirit is in you. His presence presence is in you, his people. And so to be committed to the temple today is to be committed to his church. Uh, To support the worship of God financially today is to support the ministry of the gospel at his church. Um, Do you see how how they they all start to kind of overlap? Like, Like the generous giving of God's people today, it's also about trust, isn't it? It, it, we, We declare that God is Lord over our money. It's not our money, it's his, and we are stewards of his gifts, and we we trust God when we give generously, not money. And we do these things as an act of worship. It's all about worship. If you notice that in the covenant, the whole covenant is about worship. Purity in their relationship, so they will continue to worship God, they will raise up children who worship God and bring in others to worship God. Enjoying sabbatical rest so that they can remember that God is their refuge, their provider, their sustainer, so they will continue to keep their eyes on him and trust him and worship him alone. Not neglecting the house of the Lord so that they can continue to enjoy his presence and worship him fully. It's all about worship. It's all about uh, uh, returning to worship in a sense, right? These people have repeatedly turned their back on the one who created them and loves them the most. And what we've seen over the past three weeks is how God awakens his people. He, 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 he renews them. He, he brings them back to the point of saying, Lord, you have been faithful, and we have not. And so we're turning back to you. It's a beautiful story of a broken people who are taking their sins seriously. And they're setting their hearts to do God's word and to walk in his ways. Friends, are, are we taking our sins seriously? Are, are we taking holy living as God's people in this world seriously? Are, are, you, are you taking confession of sin and repentance seriously? And maybe for you, you need to do that for the first time. I've been calling you for, the few, for a few weeks to do that. Maybe you've, you've never done that. Or maybe over the past three chapters, you, you've seen that, and I, I, I've, I've started to, like there's that, that kind of spiritual awakening, and maybe you've taken some steps, and maybe you're hungry to hear from God, and maybe through, through the reading and the teaching of his word, you've been convicted of your sin, and maybe you've even confessed that sin, hallelujah, but maybe you need to stand up today and say, because of God's grace shown to me as a sinner, I'm turning from my sinful ways and I'm following after Jesus. What a declaration that would be. Would you do that today? Or maybe you're a Christian and you're, you're part of the church family and, and you've committed to separating yourself from walking in sin to live according to God's ways set out in his word. And the, the old covenant people and the new covenant people, we're called to the same thing. We're, we're, we're both called to be holy because God is holy. We're both called to be beacons of light in this world, this royal priesthood. Like none of that has changed. We're going to get into um, how all of this is pointing to Jesus uh, big time. Uh, not fully today, but you'll see in, you'll see in the, Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, that they fail to keep the covenant. Like, I think their, their heart is, is earnest in their desires to do this, but they don't do it. And in, in, in many ways, they were, they were doomed to fail. Um, because if anything, this text is, sh- if it's showing us anything, 
It's showing us that what Jesus said in John 15 is true when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, like apart from me, you have no hope of holy living. Jesus says, apart from me, you have no hope of bearing my fruit. You need Jesus. They needed Jesus, right? All of this is pointing to their need of Jesus. They needed a better obedience, which can only be found in Jesus. And we have Jesus, right? We, we have that perfect obedience in him. And we have our sins uh, taken care of and atoned for completely once and for all in Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. But listen, even on this side of the cross, even, even with our sins paid for completely, even as, as God looking at us as perfect law keepers in Christ, Jesus still says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's still true. Our, our need of him was not a one-off thing. We need to remain with him, he says. He, he is the source of power for continued holy living. And I mentioned last week how the text showed us something about our union with God in Christ and our communion with God in Christ. Like our union with God in Christ is secure. It was accomplished on the cross. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can change that. But what about our communion with him? What about our ongoing relationship with Jesus? If Jesus says we need to remain with him, and if that intimate relationship needs to be tended to, what does that look like in your life? Are you paying attention to that at all? Are you serious about that at all? I'll tell you what part of it looks like is taking confession and repentance really seriously. And as we finish, I'm going to read you just a couple verses from Colossians 3, and then we'll be done. Colossians 3, Paul is talking to Christians, uh, those who have been raised with Christ, he beautifully puts it. And, and he, in Colossians 3, he's calling them to holiness, right? He's calling them to be holy, just like God's people have always been called to. And he's calling them to put on this new self and to walk in this new way of holiness. And in this, you get this, this union with God in Christ and this communion with God in Christ dynamic. And he says in verse three, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that incredible? Christian, that's true for you. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's an incredible statement. It's saying if, if when you have placed your faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, Paul says his death becomes your death. It's like you have died with Christ on the cross and it's like you have risen with him and your life is now hidden in Christ in God. That's astounding. That's a description of your union with God. Accomplished on the cross and now hidden with Christ in God. That that word hidden means to conceal. It means to store up. It's secret. It's hidden and no one can find it. No one can take it away. No one can steal it. Your union with God in Christ is secure. But then what? Are we done? Uh, now, now what? Do we just wait for Jesus to come again and, and bring heaven no, no, there's work to be done because two verses later after saying that, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly inside you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he gives these examples, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, covetousness. Do, do you see that now and not yet reality at play here? Like in Christ, you are counted as righteous. You are united with God in Christ, stored up in heaven. It's like you've died and, and risen from the dead already. Christ, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's a promise God will not break. But Paul says, until then, one of the traits of someone who has placed their faith in Jesus and have had their sins forgiven and have their life hidden with Christ in God, one of their traits is they are someone who wages war against their sin. We wage war against our earthly, fleshly sin until Christ comes again. We put to death our sinful self. 
And a huge part of that is confession and repentance of sin. You see, the past three chapters of Nehemiah have shown us the good and appropriate response of a people who've had the roof come off and they're given this awareness of God's holiness and his goodness towards them. And they're also given an awareness of all the ways we have sinned against him. But it doesn't crush us, right? It doesn't crush us. We can joyfully and worshipfully confess those sins. And as New Testament followers of Jesus, we can remain with Jesus. We, we can abide with him. And we can live holy lives. We can bear the fruit. We can enjoy his presence and invite others in to do the same. We can be his royal priesthood on earth, but only when we abide with Jesus, only when we remain with him. Are you remaining with him? Are you abiding with him? Are you enjoying his presence? Are you enjoying his nearness? Are you receiving his power when you stay connected to him? It's the only way forward, friends. How will you remain with him if you're not confessing and repenting? Are you taking those things seriously, church? And would you stand with me and we'll pray. Um... First John says, if, if you confess with your mouth, um, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Um, thank you, Jesus, that that is for all. And what grace, what grace in our lives to, to extend that free invitation to those who are weary, to those who know just weeping, to those who know the exhaustion of this human life, you say, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. Eternal rest is found in me. Um, Lord, may we, we take our sins seriously. That, that's a, such a, a countercultural thing in this world. To confess sin, to confess that we are not walking in your ways and that there is a righteous way to live. And um, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving our sins, uh, for, for storing our life up in heaven with you, and for sending us your Holy Spirit to abide in us, and for inviting us to be with you, and to receive your power, to receive your peace. And may we be a church that, that fully believes you when you say, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we take those steps of obedience, not to earn your favor, but as a response to what you've done for us. And may we turn from the sinful ways that, that we fall back into and rest in you, Jesus. You're so good to us. In your name we pray, amen.